Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for that prayer. Well, good morning. Thank you. It's a simple thing. It's a simple thing. Hey, I'd like to just start by adding my own thanks to to y'all. I I really didn't know what to expect when I came in this morning. Um, But thank you. Thanks not just for being here, but for cooperating with uh, the, you know, the mask protocol that we have in place. It's uncomfortable. I'm being reminded of what mask breath is. Uh, Somewhere along the line, I had forgotten about it, but I am now reacquainted with mask breath. And so I know that there's a variety of uh, just opinions about about this, but one of the ways I think I've seen the spirit at work in our church has just been, despite disagreement, um, we have continued to live life and worship together uh, with joy for each other and worked these things out with a relative sense of peace. And so I just want to thank you for living out what I think is the grace of Jesus Christ in front of each other in that way. Uh, It's been really sweet to witness as difficult as all this has been. Um, This morning we're looking at Psalm 12, and uh, it may not surprise you to see that we're looking at yet another Psalm of Lament. We've already hit a number of them over this summer, but it shouldn't surprise us that uh, the Psalms are continually bringing lament to bear in front of us. Almost a third of the Psalms, I think I've got my math right, but I think a 42 out of 150 Psalms can be safely considered either individual or community lament. And uh, that alone should tell us something about what the posture of God's people has and should look like through the ages as we continue to encounter uh, a world around us that we don't always understand. And it tells us profoundly of the place of the minor key in our worship. But it also instructs us as, as, as we wrestle with difficult things in the middle of difficult lives and circumstances and instructs us of what it looks like as God's people uh, encounter much in, in our lives and in our world that can be confusing. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. This is another Psalm of David. Let's look together. Psalm 12, I'll read the entire Psalm, verses 1 through 8. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, you know what David was feeling as you worked in him to write these words, and you know what's going on in our own hearts as we gather together. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would bring, Holy Spirit, would you bring these words to bear on our hearts and our lives in such a way that we could sense your nearness to us, that we could sense that in you we can trust and give us wisdom 
as we look at these things. I just pray you would help me, help me to love these friends well, and help me to honor you with the words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's kind of crazy to think about it, but um, it's August. Uh, and that mean, one of the things that means is that we have been uh, among you and with you for 10 months now, which is just kind of crazy to think about. And I can safely say that, uh, that we're beginning to settle into life in Birmingham and we're enjoying life with you. And one of the ways that I know that I'm beginning to kind of understand our place in Birmingham is that I'm using the maps function on my phone a lot less. That might seem like not a big deal, but it's actually kind of sneaky important. So, because just one of the ways that we kind of know where we are and, and our, our place in a, in a city is just how the roads work. And I'm starting to see that I've got, I'm developing just kind of working knowledge of where things are and how long it'll take me to get from A to B and where the traffic hotspots are. It's all kind of starting to come together for me. But there's one place that I just can't figure out. It's a, it remains a mystery to me, and, uh, and I think I'm about to give up trying to figure it out. And that's just the traffic on 280 continues to remain unpredictable to me. Like, I, like, just hang with me. I'll get on it during times when I expect it to be congested, and it can be like smooth sailing. And I'll get on it in times when I think it'll be wide open, and it, it'll be like bumper to bumper and congested. I'm seeing some nodding heads, so you know what I'm talking about. And that's like... That's like not that big of a deal, but it's at least a little bit frustrating because in so many ways, we're, we spend our, so much of our lives just trying to make sense of things that we encounter every day. Like so much of what we interact with on a day-to-day basis, we will spend significant amounts of time and energy just trying to make sense of it. This is one of the reasons, this is one of the things that we think about when we choose like what articles we'll read or what podcasts we'll listen to, is we're just seeking to get wisdom from somebody that seems to have the ability to make sense of the world. It it helps us in the midst of a sense of disorientation that we carry around with us. And one of the things that I see in this passage is that we, we we're we're reading the words of King David as he is seeking to try and make sense of things that he's observing around him. He's disoriented because he is surrounded by things he can't make sense of. Even as you look at the psalm, it it has the feeling like it's just kind of all over the place. Like it can be kind of hard to discern the structure to it. And David himself I would venture to say was probably in a state of deep confusion as he was like, these things, I, I am observing these things and they're difficult for me to see. And I think what we see is David wrestling with a sense of disorientation. And I also think we see David, you know, establishing some points of clarity in the midst of it that he can be sure of. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is just a, the, the state of disorientation and points of clarity that he's holding on to. So disorientation and clarity. There, there are several things that we can look at. It's really all over the psalm that David is, just seems to be simply observing things that are disorienting to him. And, uh, and, and it's having an impact on his ability to just function in the world as the king of Israel. The first thing you see is that David is disoriented by things that are being said around him. Look at verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. 
everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Flattering lips would simply be they're saying things that aren't true, that don't actually reflect what they believe. A double heart would be a divided heart or speaking out of a sense of divided loyalty. But the effect that it's having on David as he seems to be immersed in, within the company of people that, uh, that, that have a very casual relationship with the truth is that he, can't, he simply just can't trust that people are saying what they mean. Or that people are speaking truth when they're around him. It's what the way that words are, the way that words are used are deeply troubling to him. He's surrounded by people who lie. So that's one point of disorientation. Another is that he is disoriented by, by when he looks around and he sees who is thriving and who isn't. Look at verse 1. That's the, this is a central complaint. Of the, of the psalm. He says, the faithful have vanished. Save me, O Lord, the faithful have vanished. And now look at verse 4. There are those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, the tongues of liars, and our lips are with us. Who is master over us? And David is deeply troubled because he, he is observing the plight of two different groups of people. The first one is the faithful. The faithful are faithful to God. That's, that's the description that we see. They, they, they're faithful to God. They sit under his law. They work to inculcate his morals and ethical order into their own lives. And uh, they arrange themselves under his authority. And he looks at them and says, these people are vanishing. And then there's the other group, the unfaithful. They, they have no, they are operating without an authority. The, the question that they ask is, who is master over us? These are people who generally do what they want to do. And they take what they want to take. And they say what they want to say. Two different governing mechanisms. One, one fears the Lord. And, and, the other, and the other is a master unto himself. And he's disoriented because the point of disorientation for David is that he's like, hey, I am operating in a community that seems to be valuing something that's really wrong. It's a disruption of the moral order of things where those who have a casual relationship with the truth are somehow rewarded and those who are seeking to remain faithful to God are being penalized for it. They're vanishing. It just doesn't make sense to him. And so we see that he's troubled by what is said. He's troubled about who, he's th- who is thriving. And then finally, we see disorientation in what is worshipped. Okay, look at the end of the, of the psalm. This is really a summary statement. Look at verse 8. Vileness is exalted among the children of men. He says, there, these are people who are looking at things that are ugly things that are uh, vile or grotesque, and they're actually enjoying it. And what David really is troubled by is an upside-down world that seems to be functioning exactly the opposite of what he knows to be true. It's an inverted world. What he's describing in this psalm is the challenge of living in an upside-down world where truth is marginalized, where liars are flourishing, and and the ugly and ugliness is celebrated. That's the, that's the disorientation that David's experiencing here. Seems like the world is just spinning around him, and he can't make sense of it. 
Uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the Olympics lately. Um, well, over several weeks ago. I guess it's over now. I haven't been paying that great attention to it. But, but if you were paying attention, um, then you would know that, you know, one of the greatest gymnasts of all time actually bowed out of the competition. Now, Simone Biles, I mean, people are calling her the GOAT. Just incredible athleticism. Uh, if you see videos of her, she is moving incredibly fast and jumping incredibly high. And she's doing things that no other elite gymnast is able to do. So when she was expected to go to the Olympics and, uh, and, and come home with medals. And so it was a big deal when she bowed out of the competition. And she said, um, she, she, she used a word to describe what she was experiencing that most of us outside the gymnastics world had never heard before. She called it the twisties. And, uh, and, and when she did that, just about every famous gymnast that we had ever heard of stood up in that moment and said, yes, I know what that is. I know what that is, and it's absolutely terrifying. But the way it was described to me was, I'm going to try and do this justice. The way it was described to me was that um, it, it, can be, it can happen to anybody, uh, and that it's when a gymnast is twisting and flipping in the air and moving with an incredible amount of speed, and they, they lose a sense for where they are in relationship to the ground. It's, a, it's, it's extremely dangerous for them, and, it, and it's a case of extreme disorientation. And it's terrifying. And what we see in this passage, I think, is David expressing deep concern over things that are disoriented. He feels like the world is just spinning around him. And it feels scary to him. Now, it occurs to me that if David, the king of Israel can say this out loud and even invite his people into singing this prayer together and worship, admitting together that the world can be scary, then I think we can too. Friends, the world can be scary. It's okay to admit that. It's, a, it's okay to, to look at your lives, the people around you, and begin to understand, hey, I, I don't always understand what's going on in here. It's not failure on your part. The world can feel scary, and we can, we can not always understand our place in our own lives. There are things happening all the time in our world that we don't understand, and it can feel scary. Many of them Stephen just prayed over this morning. I don't know why. I don't know why our Afghani brothers and sisters are suffering the way that they are. I cannot explain that. I don't know why an earthquake does what it does. I can't explain that. I don't know, like I can't make sense of the pandemic. I can't explain these things. Like we can, we can know some things about it, but the, but the root of, of a scary world, it, it means looking at something that we don't always understand and just trying to find our place in it. And if that's true out here, it's certainly true in here, right? I don't always understand the work of my own heart. Like, why did I laugh at that joke? Why did I tell that joke? Why did I say that thing? There's so much regret over the things that we do. And at some point, we, we, we have to, if we're fair, we have to admit to ourselves that we're not just victims 
trying to survive in a complex and scary world, we also at times contribute to the chaos of it. And I think this psalm is just inviting us to be honest about that. But listen, you can be honest with hope. Because hope for out there and hope for in here. Because the story of the Bible begins with the, with the story of a world that made sense. That God created a world and he looked at it and he said it was good. It was very good. He looked at, 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 uh, at man and woman and pronounced very good over them. And it's the story of a time when there was perfect relationship between God and man. And there was order and there was peace and there was profound joy. And all of that was disturbed when Adam and Eve believed a lie. They believed a lie that they could be like God. They believed a lie that they could be God. And as as the way the story of the world is told in the Bible, that's when chaos entered the world. That's that's when chaos entered the world and could characterize our existence and our struggle in so many ways. And that's why when we make the confession, the profound profession... That Jesus, when he came to be with us, he entered the world. That's a big deal. Because he left a place of order and goodness and he came into a place of chaos just to be with us. And the question for you and for me, I think, and this is what I really want you to ask yourself, is as you're wrestling with the things that you don't understand... And as you're staring at the things that you might be scared of or worried about, are there points of clarity that you can hold on to? Are, are there places that you can look that are, that are sturdy, that are resilient, that are firm handholds that you can hold on to that, that, that remain in place no matter what you're experiencing around you? I think that's what we see when we look here at this psalm, that David installs clarity into the confusion. You see it right in the center of the psalm, that there are certain points of clarity that remain true for David no matter what he is witnessing or experiencing around him. And the first is simply about he has clarity about who is actually trustworthy. If you look at verse 6, what does he say? The, The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. It does, it, it, he's saying it doesn't get any more trustworthy or pure than, uh, than, than the Lord's words. And that is a profound thing to hold on to. When you're, when you're sitting in the middle of a community and you don't know whose words that you can trust and you feel lost in the middle of it, there are words that are available to me, that are completely trustworthy and reliable. That is a point of clarity for him. So he's clear about who is trustworthy, but he's also clear about who is secure. Look at this. This is why why he can trust that the Lord's words are reliable because you you actually see the Lord speak here in verse 5. Where is it? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. That according to the Lord and according to his trustworthy words, the needy, those who are groaning, actually have security in the Lord. And then it goes further. You see in verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. 
And so David enjoys clarity about who is trustworthy and who is secure. But if we stand back and look at the psalm, I think you also get a, get a picture of who is worthy of our worship. I don't know about you, but I, I'm a, I, I like to think of myself as a fixer, somebody who hears problems and wants to kind of fix them. I come from a, a long line of fixers. Sometimes I feel like I'm surrounded by a bunch of fixers. David, I, I think, was somebody who probably thought of himself that way too. He liked to resolve problems. But who's the major player in this passage who's actually going about attending to the deep problems in the world? Who is the rescuer? This is a profound thing that you see a capable person, a powerful person, a person whose words mean something to the people, rallying through worship, looking to God as the only, only one who can resolve these deep problems that they're immersed in. And David is saying, despite all of this ugliness that we seem to look to and somehow enjoy, that God alone is worthy of our worship. He's taken it on himself. He's the one who takes these, the, the backwards order of things and takes it on himself to write what looks like an upside-down world to David. And if you understand anything about Jesus, I, I really want, you to, I want it to be this. That Jesus entered the world and died on the cross and offers us this, the, the justification we need to stand before the Lord. But he is also working against, he is working to revor- reverse the upside down ways of this world. That he's taking an upside down world and he's setting it back up again. And you see this in all kinds of ways that it play out in Jesus' life. That he does things that are just completely unexpected. Like, and it, it just doesn't make sense when we look at it in some ways. Like, it, doesn't, it shouldn't make sense to us that the divine would become human. The incarnation itself is math that we can't make sense of. And that he didn't just become human, but, but God, from his throne room, enters the world and lives a poor man's life. And that as a religious leader, it, it, instead of avoiding those who are contaminated with sickness or greed or sin, he actually moves right towards those people. And that somehow he accomplishes the life everlasting, the promise that holds us in faith, he accomplishes life everlasting through his own death. That Jesus is actually reshaping our understanding of what's normal, what's good, And he's taking this inverted world and renewing all things and putting things back together again. That's what Jesus is working to do. And this should say a a few things to us. This should say something to us who actually, you know, look at our lives and we feel pretty comfortable. And I want you to hear, hey, I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy for you. And there's some of us here, like we, we, we have means, we enjoy our work, we enjoy the people that we're doing community with, and we, it can feel like we've kind of got our lives squared away. And I'm really, I, I'm not, I don't resent that at all, I'm happy for you. But the, there's a danger in that, in that we can begin to coast. Like we can begin to really enjoy a world that Jesus is, is setting about to change. 
And so the question for you that I would love for you to wrestle with if you are in this room is are you at peace with a Savior who's much more concerned about your heart than the things that you've accomplished? And can you make peace with a Savior who is all about changing the world that uh, you've come to enjoy and be comfortable within? This speaks to those who are uncomfortable, but or speaks to those who I think are comfortable, but this also speaks to those of us who are uncomfortable. A psalm of lament in so many ways teaches God's people just what it looks like to groan, to groan with hope. And, and many of us are groaning these days, aren't we? Like there are things that we look, look at and, and, and all we can do is just groan. And we ask the question, how... How long, O oh Lord? Listen, God loves your groanings. He, he loves to hear the groanings of your heart. In fact, the Holy Spirit, it says, is groaning on your behalf. At times with groanings too deep for words. But we can groan with hope that this world as we understand that isn't always going to remain in the way that we experience it. We can groan, we can groan with a deep hope in what the world will one day become. Not because we'll fix everything, although we should try, but not because we'll re- renew all things, not because we'll redeem anything, not because we can even like fix ourselves, but because we have, we hold a promise with a great, from a great God that invites us to hope because he is laboring on behalf of his people for the renewal of all things. And he will not stop until the new heavens and the new earth are here. And the Bible calls us to great hope and and the grand reversal that God is accomplishing. One more thing and then I'm done. There are a few places I can go that help me imagine the new heavens and the new earth than, uh, than when, when I go skiing on a clear day. It's been years since I've been able to do that. But there's just something about sitting on top of a snow-covered mountain on a clear day when you can look for miles and all you see are other snow-covered mountains around you. And, then, and you're looking and you have somehow turned, uh, all these people have somehow turned what should be dangerous into recreation, okay? I think there's a picture of, uh, of God's renewing work at, at, in our midst just when you go skiing. And there are general rules, though, that, uh, that the temperature at the top of the mountain should be colder than the temperature at the bottom of the mountain, right? That's why they, when these ski resorts give you temperature, they tell you temperature readings, they give you both. What's at the top, what's at the bottom, and that helps you choose your gear. But every now and then, and it's dreamy, Every now and then, the temperature at the peak of the mountain is actually warmer than the temperature at the bottom. And when that happens, that's because you're in the middle of what's called a cloud inversion. And as best I understand it, that's when the cold, dense air slides downhill overnight and gets trapped there by the clouds and the structures of the mountain. And so when you get on your lift, what you're actually doing, the ski lift, what you're actually doing is you're making your way through very cold, frigid air toward the warm air that's waiting for you at the top. 
And friends, that is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Is that he holds us in faith while we make our way through what can feel like very frigid air to one day enjoy the warmth, the place that he has for us. Let me pray. Jesus, I'm just asking that you would help us to trust you. Holy Spirit, you would take the truths of these things, help us to hear them, to absorb them, to live by them, and please hold us in hope. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.